Take out your Bible, if you would, and open to the book of Ezra, chapter 8. I am picking up where Michael left off last week in our series on the book of Ezra, and we know from chapter 7 that Ezra is leading a second wave of captives from Babylon back to Israel and Jerusalem. And we know this about Ezra's return as well from chapter 7. We, we, we know that Ezra, his return is not about the rebuilding of the temple. That, that's already been done. It's about the reforming or the reformation of the people's hearts. And so the key to these last chapters of the book of Ezra, 8, 9, and 10, the key to these chapters is taking note of what Ezra does. Not just in the return to Jerusalem or not just when he gets to Jerusalem, but what he does to prepare himself for the journey and the people, how he makes the journey itself. Uh, Two weeks ago, my son Witt and I, we went on the fellowship father-son camp out. I I think we have a picture that you'll see up here on these side screens. That that is me and my boy Witt. We are patrolling the borders of the farm with our airsoft guns. Yeah, we're pretty tough. Yeah, we are. We had a great time together, but you can uh, probably tell just by looking up here at me right now that I'm not much of a camper, not much of a camper. I, um, my idea of camping is cracking a window at a nice hotel room. That's, that's my idea of camping. And so preparing for this camp out with my boy, which happens once a year, it takes me several days to get ready for the camp out. I, I got to borrow a tent, of course, and I need somebody how to, to show me how to set up the tent and got to go to the store and get snacks because there's apparently not a stocked pantry that comes with the tent. So I got to go get snacks and then I got to get all our stuff together, right? I got to get flashlights, got to find those in the house and put batteries in them and got to find an air mattress, borrow that from somebody and, and find a pump to blow it up and get all our fishing gear together and go get live bait and you get the picture. I, I'm spending most of that week before we left on Friday preparing for this trip. And I spent more than two hours just loading the car for a 25-minute drive to Leaper's Fort, right? It's the preparation that was significant. I spent more time in preparation than I did in the journey itself. That, that was uneventful, the drive to Leaper's. Well, in the same way, Ezra here in Ezra chapter 8, I just find this interesting He spends 16 verses talking about their preparation for the journey and just one about the journey itself. It seems, at least in this case, that the preparation is more important than the journey. And that's interesting to me because when we look at other places in the Old Testament where this group of Israelites, this nation of Israel, they make journeys like like from Egypt to the promised land, it's It's the journey that's emphasized. It's the journey that's more important. In that one particular case, we have four and a half books about their journey through the wilderness to the promised land. That's not the case here, not not in the book of Ezra. No, here it's the preparation that's important. And I think there's some lessons for us here in the preparation. Some unexpected lessons for us about the reforming work of spiritual preparation in our own lives. In Ezra chapter eight, it begins with a list of families, the list of 
the families, some numbers, the number of people that went back with Ezra, this second wave of returnees to Jerusalem. And I'm not going to read through all the names this morning just for time, but I want you to know that these names, they are important. It would be through these people that God would restore the nation of Israel and ultimately would send his son. These, these names are not insignificant. That's the first portion of the book. And then on the back portion of the book, we have just a very brief description of their arrival in Jerusalem. This group does make it to Jerusalem. They arrive, they, they give all of the gold and the silver and the temple utensils that the king of Persia had given them for the temple. They deliver those things to the temple. And then this group, they, they worship God around the altar, just like the group did that went before them some 58 years earlier. So that's the bookends of this chapter where I want us to spend our time this morning is in the middle of the chapter. The middle of the chapter is all about preparation. The preparation of this group of people for the journey that they are about to take. And so in verse 15 and following, Ezra gathers this group of people at the river. It's the river that leads to Ahava. We'll see that in the text. And it's a river that we don't know a whole lot about, but was on the outskirts of Babylon, probably the northwest side of the city of Babylon. He gathers everybody who's going on this journey there at the river. And it's here at the river as God prepares them that I believe God has two lessons for us this morning. A lesson in patience, that is verses 15 to 20, and a lesson in dependence. That's verses 20 to 23. And we'll spend our time here in these eight verses because I believe that these eight verses are the core to this chapter. And if we can understand them, then maybe we can understand all that God has for us in our own preparation as well. So pick it up with me in verse 15, if you would, for this first lesson. And I'll just provide some running commentary as as I read through these five verses. Chapter eight, verse 15. Now I, Ezra, assembled them, that is all the families that we see in verses one through 14, at the river that runs to Ahava, where we camp for three days. And when I observed the people and the priest, I did not find any Levites there. Right off the bat, we have a problem. What's the problem? There aren't any Levites. Why is that a problem? Well, that's a problem because the Levites had a very specific responsibility among the people of God. They were responsible for temple worship. You couldn't worship God without Levites. You might remember this from chapter three when we studied this, that this return of these captives in Babylon to Jerusalem it's all about the worship of the one true God. Everything they do is about the return to worship. You can't worship God without a temple. So they go about back and build a temple. You can't worship God without Levites who were the ones who were responsible for administering temple worship. So here in chapter eight, just like we saw in chapter three, we, we find that at least for Ezra, the worship of God remains the priority. We can't go without Levites. Verse 16, so I, Ezra, sent for Eliezer, Ariel, 
Shemaiah, El Nathan, Jareb, El Nathan, Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshulam, leading men, and for Joarib and El Nathan teachers. I sent them to Edo, the leading man at the place Casaphia, and I told them what to say to Edo and his brothers, the temple servants at the place Casaphia. That is, bring ministers to us for the house of our God. Now, we don't know much about this leader, Edo. And we don't know very much at all about this place, Casaphia. But apparently it wasn't very far from where they were camped at the river. And it was a place where a lot of Levites lived. Maybe they were being trained there, we're not told. Ezra sends this group of men, this contingent that he trusts, to this place, Casaphia, in hopes that he might find some Levites to bring them back to the camp for the journey to Jerusalem. And in verse 18, we see what God does. Look at verse 18. According to the good hand of our God upon us, they, the contingent, brought us a man of insight of the sons of Mali, the son of Levi. This guy was a Levite, the son of Israel, namely Sherebiah, and his sons and brothers, 18 men. And they brought us Hashabiah and Jeshiah of the sons of Merari, with his brothers and their sons, 20 men, and 220 of the temple servants, whom David and the princes had given for the service of the Levites, all of them designated by name. The contingent goes to Casaphia. They come back to the river with temple servants and with Levites. Now, I want you to put yourselves in the sandals of this group that had gathered by the river that leads to Ahava, just for a moment. I want you to put yourself in their place, and I want you to imagine what this must have felt like to them. They had left everything that they had ever known, their homes, their jobs, their, their friends. They had left all measure of comfort, security, familiarity. And they had taken a pretty big risk. They were going back to this city, Jerusalem, that had not been reestablished for very long, that wasn't near as safe as the city of Babylon was. And they're about to endeavor a journey that isn't safe as well. The work, they, they work up the nerve to trust God in all of those things. And they get to the river. They're just about to set out from the river altogether. And Ezra, who is organizing this group of people for the journey, he, he gets to the last group of families and he says, oh, oh, wait, hold on. Hold up, everybody. Hold on a second. We have a problem. No Levites. I just went through everybody. There, there aren't any Levites here. We... We can't go anywhere without Levites. Now, I don't know exactly what this was like for them. I don't know exactly what they felt in that moment, but I can imagine what it might have felt like. And I think it might have felt like what it feels like at our house when we're packing up to take a family trip. It might have felt like that. See, at our house, when we do that, this is kind of how it goes. I'll kind of get everybody together the night before and say, hey, listen, we need to leave by nine or so in the morning to make it where we're going. And so that means that we need to be packed up. I need everybody's bag. We need to be packing up the car. 
about 8.30. And uh, without fail, at least at our house, this season of life with our kids' ages, I'll get to nine o'clock, I'll have everything in the car, I'll be looking through to make sure that we have everything that we need for the trip and somebody something is missing without fail. Somebody's suitcase, somebody's shoes, we, we don't have it. So we're going back in the house to try to find what we forgot. And somehow nine o'clock becomes 9.30 and then we're all ready to go. And somebody's got to go to the bathroom. So somehow 9.30 becomes 10, right? And, and then the dog gets loose who we're going to take to the kennel. And we got to chase the dog around the cul-de-sac. We get the dog back in the car. 10 becomes 10.30. And somehow, some way, without fail, we don't leave till after lunch. Now, I'm not the only one that has experienced this, right? Please tell me I'm not the only one that has experienced this. I'm back in the house making turkey sandwiches like, eat this, and we're going to go. That's, that's where we end up. Not the warmest of family interactions on the day of departure. I, I'm just imagining, right? I, I'm not saying this is what the text says, but they end up spending 12 days there instead of three. I, I'm just imagining that this is probably what this felt like. Ezra says to them, hey, 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 we're not going anywhere until we find some Levites. Well, how long is that going to take, Ezra? They didn't come the first time you invited them to come. What makes you think that now the second time they're going to leave everything that they know and they're going to come with us? Let's, let's just get on the road, right? I get that. I think Ezra probably got that. He was ready to go but not without what he needed for the trip. Ezra was willing to wait. Now, I mentioned this, it says it later in the text that they waited 12 days there at the river. You see, waiting is a part of preparation. Waiting on God to provide. Waiting on God to open a door. Waiting on God to equip us for what we need for the next season. Waiting on God to give us vision for how this piece of our business might work in this market. Waiting on God to prepare your heart. Wait, waiting on God to give you what you need. Waiting is a part of preparation. And notice here that waiting doesn't look like sitting on your hands, does it? That doesn't look like this, not for Ezra. Waiting is active. Waiting is engaged. He, he exhausts his resources, sends a group he trusted to a place where he thought that God might provide. He moved quickly. He didn't demand that God provide at Casafia. He, he just went. He, he went and asked. He, he didn't sit still. He believed that God would provide in his time. And get this, God did. He did provide. Yeah, they waited 12 days at the river to leave, which probably felt like an eternity to some. But think about it this way. They were spending three days there at the river already. And we'll see in a minute that they spend at least a day on the back end fasting and praying before they leave. So if we think about it this way, in a matter of eight days time, God provides not one or two Levites, temple servants, he provides 258 in eight days' time. 258 men plus all their families come walking into camp less than a week later or about a week later. That, that's incredible. 
And so here's the first lesson from the river. It's, it's simple, but it's true. God's good hand provides for those who are willing to wait. It does. God's good hand provides for those who are willing to wait on him. In this case, he provided quickly. That's not always the case, is it? But it doesn't mean that God's good hand isn't on us. And get this, God is always working in the waiting. You see, we think we're waiting and nothing's happening. No, 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 that's not the case. God is working in the waiting. He's working to prepare our own hearts for whatever's coming next. And he's working to provide for us in only a way that he can, putting the pieces together for whatever we might need when we go and ask him for it, like Ezra did here. Somebody was preparing the hearts of those 258. They didn't just turn around and go. Somebody was readying them to leave. Can can you imagine how this must have felt for those people at the river now? Ezra, what? We can't, we can't get Levites. We can't, no way. A week later, they turn around, 258 people and all their families are piling into the camp. Like, oh yeah, I, I guess God can be trusted. And maybe if he can be trusted in something as big as this, then he can be trusted in every aspect of my life. Lesson number one from the river is a lesson in patience. God provides for those who are willing to wait on him. And lesson number two is a lesson in dependence. And it's found beginning in verse 21. Look at it with me. All the Levites and their families arrive at the river and here's what happens next. Ezra says, then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for us, our little ones, and all all our possessions. What do they do after the Levites arrive? They they leave. Nope, not yet. No, they fast and pray. For what? For a safe journey. For who? For themselves, for their kids, and for their possessions. You see, fasting and Prayer are a part of preparation as well. They're part of our preparation. And and we can't understand how significant this act of preparation was until we understand how dangerous this journey was, okay? This would be a four-month trip from Babylon to Jerusalem with families, with young children, with aging grandparents, without military personnel. There were no state troopers on the highway from Persia to Israel, right? No, no guards that were walking with this caravan. Nobody even carried a concealed handgun. There, there was no protection for them. And, and there were bandits all along the way. There were robbers, we know from this, we know this from this era of history, that there, there were robbers that, that literally made a living preying on caravans like this on this particular road. They, they were not safe. Not, not to mention that this was a, a journey through enemy territory for these Jews. And so they don't go, they don't leave until they prepare their hearts, how? by declaring their dependence on God, by humbling themselves before God and pleading with 
him to keep them safe all along the way. Now, certainly this daunting trip to Jerusalem was means enough to take them to their knees. But it's not the only reason that they fast and pray. And I want you to see this other reason. It's found in verse 22. They fast and they pray. And here's what Ezra says. For, here's why. For I was ashamed to request from the king troops and horsemen to protect us from the enemy on the way. Because we had said to the king, the hand of our God is favorably disposed to all those who seek him. But his power and his anger are against all those who forsake him. You mean to tell me that we could have had troops and horsemen, Ezra? You mean to tell me that from the king's own guard, he he could have protected us? Why are we not doing that? Ezra says, well, it's because of what we told the king. I I told him that, that God's good hand is favorably disposed to all who seek him. So we're good. We're good. You did what? Like, now, you could argue here that Ezra was stupid. You, you could argue that, and some do, actually. You could argue that. Or you could argue here that Ezra actually believed it. He actually believed what he said. That he believed that God's good hand is favorably disposed to those who seek him, and that that would be enough. That's the camp that I fall into. I would submit to you this morning that he said it because he believed it. And he practiced it because his belief was anchored in a God he knew. Why would I say that? Well, it's because of the kind of man that Ezra was. Well, what kind of man is Ezra? Ezra, chapter seven, verse 10, do you remember this from two weeks ago? Chapter seven, verse 10 says that Ezra was a man who set his heart on the study of the law of God, his word, He put it into practice and he taught it to the people of Israel. You know what that means? That means that Ezra knew who God was. He had studied the God of his word. He he had studied how God had revealed himself to them. He had, at the time, the first five books of the Old Testament and probably one book of prophecy as well. He had studied those books And in those books, he saw that God was a God who kept his promises, who provided for his people, who was faithful to his people, his care for his people. He had studied that and he had put it into practice in his own life. He had experienced that same God in his own life. And so Ezra has confidence in the power of God. And because of his confidence in the power of God to protect them, he prepares for the journey by placing himself and this group of people fully and completely in the Lord's hands. Put them in a position where they would have to rely on him. How are we gonna keep ourselves safe? Well, we know we can't keep ourselves safe even with the king's troops and his horsemen. But God can keep us safe. And we will depend on him. So, verse 23, so we fasted. 
prayed and sought our God concerning this matter, and he listened to our entreaty. He heard their prayer. Why? Because God's good hand is favorably disposed on all who seek him. Ezra was right. And this is the lesson in dependence. We can depend on him, and when we do, his good hand is on us. See? Now, we have to be so careful here. I can't have you walking out of here thinking that everything you ask God for, he's going to give you. I, I can't guarantee that at all. But I can promise you this. I can promise you that he will give you everything you need to be conformed more and more into the image of his son, Jesus. I can promise you that. And I can promise you this. If you will set your heart on him, if you'll set your life toward him, if you'll orient your life according to his word, if you'll put it into practice, if you will live it, if you will own it when you don't live it, I can promise you this, that you will experience his good hand in your life. You will taste of it. You will. You will become more like his son Jesus and as you do, you will experience more and more of his joy, more and more of his peace, more and more of the hope that is only found in Jesus Christ regardless of your circumstances, regardless of whatever it is that's going on in your life. These people don't fast and pray because they think they can manipulate God to do what they want. And they don't fast and pray out of some rote, obligatory spiritual discipline either. They fast and they pray because they need God desperately. They fast and they pray because they are dependent on him. They demonstrate their complete and utter dependence on him for everything. For food and for a safe journey on a dangerous trip. Every time they get hungry, every time their stomach growls, they are reminded that he is their provider and that his good hand is on their life. So here's my invitation to each of you today. I want to invite us to do what this group did at the river. I want to invite us as a community of faith to take 24 hours and fast just like they did. And here's how. I want to invite you to do this from tonight after dinner till tomorrow night at dinner. You'll miss two meals, Monday breakfast and Monday lunch. No food, just a whole bunch of water. And here's why. Here's why. So that you and I will grow more aware of our dependence on God for everything. That's it. No other reason just so that you and I will grow more aware of our need for him. That's it. You see, the core of fasting is simply to express our desire for more of him, our longing for him, our need for his provision, his care, his protection in our own life. And so every time you get hungry on Monday, every time you drive by Sonic and know you just need a drink, every time that that happens, you'll be reminded to pray. You'll be reminded to acknowledge 
your dependence on God. You'll be reminded to acknowledge your need for him and you'll be able to communicate your desire for more of him. I did this on Thursday just to prepare my own life for this weekend, for teaching you. And I'll I'll tell you this, um, honestly, it, it was way harder than I thought it would be. I thought missing two meals would be no big deal. I I really did. It was harder. I got hungry. Imagine that. I got hungry. I did. I got headache. I got tired. I grew more and more aware of my dependence by the hour. I didn't really like the way it felt. I didn't like the way that it felt physically. I didn't like the way that it felt emotionally. I don't want to be dependent on anybody for anything. I don't think many of us do in this culture in this day. But it doesn't change the fact that we are dependent. I prayed a ton on Thursday, everything under the sun. And there wasn't anything earth shattering that happened in my spiritual life. There really wasn't. But I'll tell you this, over the last couple of days since I did that, I have wanted more of him. I have. It's been incremental. It's not like this huge leap. But I have, I've been more aware of my need for God for everything, not just the big things, for everything. And I believe that you will too. You know, we always ask the question, so what, at the end of a message? How do we take and apply this in our own life? Take God's truth and begin to practice it, live it out. I just talked about one way that we can, and I want to invite you just for a moment to, to begin preparing your own hearts for that if you'll take me seriously and do it. I want to give you just a moment now just to go personally and privately before the Lord and and begin that prayer that you might continue later. Just to acknowledge your dependence, your need, to communicate your desire for him, more of him, to express your willingness to wait if that's where God has you right now on his guidance, on his provision to acknowledge his sovereign hand in your life. I'm gonna give you a minute just to do that personally and then Luke's gonna come and we're gonna sing one verse and one chorus of that song, Lord, I Need You, as we close this time of prayer. So would you take a minute and do that? Now, would you lift your voices with me as we sing the end of our prayer?
Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, when I went to the Father-Son camp out, I thought all that preparation was for the trip. It wasn't just for the trip. Looking back on it now, I can tell that God was preparing my own heart. He was preparing my heart to be fully present with my son all week long that I might experience his good hand in my life with my boy. And by God's grace, I did. They were unexpected lessons for me. And they were worth the preparation. Go in peace, and we'll see you next week.